This is Pet Life Radio. Let's talk pets. Aquarium Mania on Pet Life Radio. I'm your host, Dr. Roy Anong, speaking to you from the University of Florida's Tropical Aquaculture Laboratory. Thanks for joining us. Cancer and old age are difficult to handle when they happen to our pets. Although most people are familiar with these issues in dogs and cats, not many aquarium hobbyists have the same level of understanding for their fish. Our guest today is Dr. Todd Cecil, owner and operator of Western Aquatic Animal Veterinary Service and primary exotic animal veterinarian at Pet Emergency and Specialty Center based in San Diego. Dr. Todd is well known for his fish medicine expertise and has been working with fish and other exotic animals for the past 17 years. Join us as Dr. Todd teaches us all we need to know about cancer and old age in pet fish. We'll be right back after these messages. Molly, here's your dinner. Zeus, that's not your food. Don't let that happen to your precious cat. Elevate your cat's eating experience with the Cat Tree Tray. The Cat Tree Tray keeps your cat's food off the floor and conveniently located on the cat tree. It's the perfect way to eat. It's a beautiful wrought iron tray that easily attaches to your cat tree and keeps dogs and other critters out of your cat's dish. A must for multi-pet households. There's a 6-inch tray for large bowls and a 4-inch tray for smaller bowls. Purchase your Cat Tree Tray today. Go right now to CatTreeTray.com. That's CatTreeTray.com. C-A-T-T-R-E-E-T-R-A-Y.com. Let's Talk Pets on PetLifeRadio.com. My guest today is Dr. Todd Cecil, owner and operator of Western Aquatic Animal Veterinary Service and primary exotic animal veterinarian at Pet Emergency and Specialty Center based in San Diego. Dr. Todd, thanks for joining us today. You're welcome. Well, I've I've known you for a number of years and I I know you've done so much work with a lot of exotics, especially I'm familiar with your fish work. And I'm really excited to kind of talk with you about this topic. But before we get into kind of the, the sadder discussion about cancer and old age in fish, I wanted to get a little bit of information, and I usually ask this question, kind of get your, uh, a little bit of background on you. What, what was your very first fish and or your very first tank setup? Yeah, I was a late bloomer of becoming a fish head. My first tank occurred when I was a zookeeper at the San Francisco Zoo, and, and I was charged with taking care of a, a small fish pond, a koi pond that had some goldfish, because no one else wants to take care of it, and I kind of learned by baptism, and it was a great thing because I was seeing it, you know, five days a week, walking past it eight hours a day. So I really got to see the changes, you know, daily and weekly that occurred in this pond and how the, all the fish interacted. And that's how I first started with my interest in fish. So we, before we go back to the zookeeper work that you did, how many aquariums and tanks have you had over the years? And, and what kind of fish are you kind of interested or do you normally keep? 
I've at various times probably had 40 different setups, and, and that ranges from the freshwater guppy molly tank that one of those we still have is my kid's tank to saltwater aquariums. I've had ponds at you know two of the different houses I've lived at and one now. And reef tanks, invertebrates, pretty much everything. I guess the only thing I really haven't gotten into yet is, is the, you know, the whole cichlid breeding system. Uh, but everything else I've dabbled in here and there. So which of those was your favorite, or can you name a favorite? Well, I sure like the saltwater tanks, just because the beautification of the setup. You can sit there and watch it. It's very soothing. The bright colors, you can watch the flow of the, the pumps and almost get a wave sense. It's a great thing I have in my office, and it, it, I really love it. You know, every day I get to see it. So you were a zookeeper, you mentioned, in, uh, in San Francisco before you went to vet school. Can you uh, tell us a little bit about that? And you mentioned a little bit about the fish. How did that kind of set you up for deciding to go to vet school? Well, I started out in San Francisco as a zookeeper, and I was there for about six years. And I really was in a position where I took care of a lot of everything, and starting from fish all the way up to primates and gorillas and working with the nursery and, and large carnivores. But I always had noticed that the, the fish pond that we had koi in and even some of the fish tanks that we had on exhibit went largely untaken care of. And they were fed every day. They were clean sporadically and probably not at the best advantage. And I kind of walked in at a time where I stepped into that position. I learned a lot real fast and a lot of mistakes made and lessons learned. But as I worked with these fish and, and I got to like them more and more, I kind of got a feeling that no one else was doing it, and I really wanted to learn more about the medicine aspect of, of fish medicine. And I think that's what spurred me as a veterinary student to really go towards more of the pet fish industry and aquaculture. So I, I know you did some training after vet school in uh, fish and aquatic medicine. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, my first stint in a curriculum was Aquamed. Um, that time it was offered out of Mississippi State and Louisiana State University and Texas A&M. And that really, you know, solidified my foundation of, of background knowledge. A lot of that was, uh, previous to that, was self-taught. A few courses in the, the wildlife and fisheries department at UC Davis, but that was my first really good introduction to medicine. And I also got to meet a lot of people in the industry, which I formed some really initial contacts, and one of those was I met some of the professors from Mississippi State University in the aquaculture department, and that led to a, a, a one-year postdoc fellowship after I had finished a two-year internship in exotic medicine. And that postdoc was working predominantly with catfish in the aquaculture industry in the state of Mississippi. And that was you know high-intensity, high-workload, uh, outdoors, indoors, lab, catching fish, just the full gamut of individual medicine and epidemiology on herd medicine. And I just was really thankful. That really set me off that I really wanted to do fish probably for the rest of my career if I'm lucky. You do a lot of other medicine with a lot of other animals. What sort of uh, group of animals do you see currently? Currently, I, I work on everything except for dogs, cats, horses, and cows. So I am primarily responsible from fish to amphibians to reptiles, which is snakes, turtles, tortoises, lizards, primates, rabbits, ferrets, sugar gliders. I mean, I do a little bit of everything, surgery and medicine. That's definitely a lot that you got to know. So let's get into our topic of today, which is was cancer and old age diseases of fish. 
Now, a listener, I think I mentioned to, unfortunately, had lost her pet goldfish to, uh, to melanoma, which had spread, and she was real interested in learning more about cancer and, and, and kind of gave the idea for this episode. How, how common is cancer in fish? Well, I believe, at least in my practice, I don't see fish cancer as commonly as I see cancer in other animals. I think it's reported sporadically, and it's still considered pretty rare. But I also wonder if, husbandry-wise, we're not letting these fish grow or live out to their lifelong potentials. And I believe that if we get them to live longer, we're probably going to be seeing more cancers in our, in our elderly fish. Well, that makes sense. So is cancer usually associated with, um, with older animals then? I think primarily it is, but we do see some cancers in fish that are thought to be viral-induced. And so some of those viral-induced cancers can be appear in younger fish also, similar to the, the fibromas in freshwater angelfish. We kind of see those in a, in a lot of multiple age groups. Okay. And when you say fibromas, can you kind of describe that for, for some of the listeners who yeah. may not be familiar? A fibroma is, you can kind of think of it as a wart-like growth. Uh, usually they're solitary lesions, pretty firm. I think most people notice them more, at least with the angelfish and, and some of the other fish that we see, usually around the mouth and the face because we notice they're having feeding problems and it's more of a big mass. They're usually you know, fairly easy to remove, but they have a pretty big tendency to regrow. Now, I think you had mentioned to me also um, something about platy and swordtail hybrids. Can you talk a little bit about some of the cancers in those? Yeah, the, the platys uh, and the swordfish hybrids, they're a little bit more prone to melanomas, which are um, benign tumors of melanin-producing cells, uh, melanocytes. And they definitely believe there's a genetic predisposition for those types of fish to develop more of these tumors. We would expect to see more melanomas, which are black, usually black tumors, from fish that have more black pigmentation. So we do see with some of the black moors, more likely to see melanomas also. Some of the black pigmented koi get melanomas predominantly also. Now, um, if you see it on those fish, are these, you said benign, so I'm, I'm taking it to mean that you can treat those? Yeah, and you know, in human and veterinary medicine, we usually, or we try to categorize tumors, neoplasia, as benign or malignant. And with the mammals, most malignant tumors are defined by how well they spread. Well, fish kind of have a different lymphatic system and a vascular system than our mammals do, and they're less likely to spread throughout the system in most cases. We kind of define fish malignancy as being really locally aggressive, and those aren't the most common types of tumors we see. Usually we see a pretty discrete mass, a single mass, and those we believe are going to be more prone to surgical and or chemotherapy treatments. So now tell us a little bit about some of the tumors that you may see in, I guess, koi and goldfish and maybe a little bit about treatments. Yeah, I think the predominantly tumors we see in, in our more commonly kept species of pond and large aquarium fish, so the goldfish and the koi, are things like fibromas and melanomas and you know papillomas. And papillomas is kind of like a warty growth. <clears throat> the melanomas come out of, generally come out of black pigmented cells. And the fibromas often come out of what are called mucocutaneous junctions, so around the mouth, maybe around the eyes, around the vent. And since they're really discrete masses and most of these are benign, we can try to take these off surgically. But I think chemotherapy is a, is a possibility on a lot of these fish too. And, and some of these chemotherapies aren't you know, 
intravenous injections, a lot of them aren't, but we can inject the lesion itself with chemotherapy drugs. And I just had a case where we actually did radiation therapy at the pond site on a koi with a melanoma, and it responded wonderfully to this type of treatment. So how did you do that at the pond? How do you do radiation at a pond? Yeah, this type of radiation therapy is with a, a, a metal that gives, naturally gives out radiation. It's called strontium. And I had a veterinary oncologist come out with me to the pond site. And this was after we took a biopsy and diagnosed this disease. And the first thing we did is we put our fish under anesthesia. And we can do that by an, immersing them in some of their own water from their own pond that has a, a dissolvable chemical called MS-222. And once they get to a, what's called a surgical plane of anesthesia where they're really not feeling anything, the first thing we did is we, we took a scalpel blade and we took off as much of the tumor as we can. And this was you know, a good penny-sized raised lesion. And then the oncologist has this metal probe and they have a little guard that they hold it with. And it's measured to where we hold it directly over that lesion for a fixed period of time. And that fixed period of time is determined on how deep we want it to go and how wide the tumor is. This particular fish has three different treatments all at the same time. So we did uh, for 30 seconds. So basically, we, he held it over an area for 30 seconds. We actually put this fish um, back in the anesthesia. When he was out again, we treated a slightly different area, so a little bit further away for another 30 seconds. And we did this three times. And remarkably, we biopsied this lesion about 60 days later. And at that point, it was free of cancer cells. So it was non-painful to the fish. And we did give him pain meds prior to doing all this because we were going to scrape it also. But the fish did phenomenally well. And I think it gives us a, another mode of treating some of these cancers that we normally wouldn't think of in a fish. Wow, that's pretty interesting. So the, the strontium will affect the cancer cells and not the other cells. Correct. And since the cancer cells are growing at a faster rate than normal cells, and that's kind of the definition of, of cancer is an uncontrolled growth, they're picking up, they're, they're absorbing more to this low-dose radiation faster than the normal cells. So hopefully they're dying faster. And that gives the healthy cells a chance to grow into the lesion and almost reconquer the space where the cancer cells were. How old was the fish? This fish was estimated, it was, it was a rescue from this, this client, uh, estimated to be 20 to 25 years old. Wow, okay. So uh, pretty old. I think that's older than you and me. So Yeah, well, not me. Maybe you. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so now, um, how about squamous cell carcinomas? I know people are probably familiar with that. You know, people probably know people that have gotten that. Can fish get that? Fish can get that, and, and we do see in our koi also. It, you know, it's a little bit more of an aggressive tumor. They believe it does manifest uh, maybe progressively from papillomas to a squamous cell carcinoma. But the same, I think they can be surgically removed. I think radiation following up on it can treat these since they are low likely to spread real fast. I think the key with any cancer, whether it's a person or a dog or a fish, is diagnosing it at a, at a fairly early state so we can treat it more aggressively quicker. Now, fish can get them, we mentioned a lot of kind of skin or external type cancers. Now, they can get them internally too, right? Correct. And, and those are the ones that are much more difficult to diagnose because they're not as visible to us. Some of the things that owners might know are a lump or the fish is not swimming as evenly as before or even just more lethargic. But still being lethargic is just a sign of being sick, not necessarily a cancer. 
But kidney tumors and ovarian or, or testicular tumors are fairly common in, in some of our goldfish and our koi. And we see it, you know, relatively frequently. So in addition, I guess the main thing that the owners would see is just that you said they're being lethargic. Would there be any other things maybe? that? Yeah, they sometimes would... they'll see a swelling on the side of the body. Okay. So one side as, pr- as pronounced to the other. Um, and that's often an indication of a mass somewhere inside the body, but that mass still could be something less aggressive, like an abscess or just an enlarged organ. doesn't necessarily mean cancer. Now, with the kidney tumors, can you treat those, or how do you um, handle a, or how would you handle a kidney tumor? Yeah, their tumors are different than ours. Uh, their kidneys are. They're, they're not, they don't move around like ours do. So getting access to their their kidneys is a little bit more tricky. And actually, I have done two or a couple surgeries, I think, you know, at least two or three on kidney tumors, but it's a major ordeal. It's abdominal surgery, just like a person would be doing, but fish's bodies are pretty compact, and there's a lot of things in the way that you need to move out of the side, you know, intestinal, intestines and the swim bladder. But if you can get to that kidney, there's a, there's a chance you can get behind it and, and tie off the blood supply using some direct pressure and cautery and, and then removing one kidney. And hopefully they have enough kidney function on the other side and the, and the tumor has not affected it to where that can be removed. The great thing about fish, too, is they're fairly resilient. And, you know, surgical modalities are not the only option. We also have the option of, of freezing off tumors, so what's called cryosurgery. And then laser surgery is a great thing that's lessen the amount of bleeding in a lot of our surgical patients. And just like using this in humans and dogs and cats, these modalities can be used in fish also. Well, that's really incredible. And, and I, yeah, I think a lot of folks are probably not familiar with all the things that you and, uh, and your colleagues as well are doing with some of the techniques being used in other animals. I'm uh, thinking we probably uh, we have a lot more to talk about, but I'd like to uh, take a short break And we'll continue our discussion with Dr. Todd Cecil after these messages from our sponsors. It's designerpetsweaters.com. Hand-knitted designer sweaters for your precious pup or cool cat. Beautiful couture patterns for your pets, including custom-knitted formal wear, casual wear, yachting, and even sports-themed. Many designer pet sweaters include feathered tammy hats, top hats, and a lot of sparkle. Each sweater includes leg loops, front paw sleeves, and leash opening. Visit designerpetsweaters.com to order your four-legged fashions today. Your pets will stay warm for the winter and be runway ready. Large or small, we fit them all. Designerpetsweaters.com Let's talk pets. Let's talk pets. On Pet Life Radio. Pet Life Radio. PetLifeRadio.com. We're back and continuing our conversation with my guest, Dr. Todd Cecil, fish and exotic animal veterinarian. So you mentioned some of the new types of treatments that are being used for cancers, and you mentioned kidney tumors. Now, I I know gonadal, or you mentioned ovarian and testicular tumors are common too. How would you handle those? Well, it's it's the same. It's an abdominal surgery. They're a little bit more accessible than the kidneys are, and it's probably, well, it is the most common surgery I probably do in our koi. 
and in light of that, I should say, you know, I maybe get to do six to seven of these a year. The outcome on these is fairly good, but I think it depends on, on how advanced the tumor is also. Because these tumors can do a fair amount of damage internally as they're growing and getting bigger and bigger, pushing on other organs and adhering to things. So the same, if we get these fish in earlier, um, then we have a better chance of surgically correcting them. And basically, we're spaying them just like we, you know, similar to like we would in a dog, a cat, or a rabbit, or anything else. Now, since you have to open them up and you have to put the fish back in the water, how do you keep water from kind of getting back into their bodies? Right. We, we tend to close uh, the abdominal incision in, in, a, in multiple layers where we're going to put the muscle together and try to create as much of a water seal as possible. And then we'll close up their skin and we'll try to put a, a protective waterproof layer like a tissue glue over that. And then we'll, we'll, you know, put them back in their, water, in their water environment. And most of these fish do really well. But I think in addition to that is if there's water getting into the wound, there's more chance of it getting infected. We are putting these uh, fish on some prophylactic antibiotics after surgery also to try to protect that. And then we also, you know, cheat a little bit and try to prevent water from rushing into these basic salty animals by salting the ponds a little bit with the koi and the goldfish to try to prevent as much edema into that site as possible. Okay. Now, you gave us a lot of information, you know, and I uh, really appreciate it on cancer. Let's talk a little bit about old age in fish. How old can some of these fish get? Well, I, I think that uh, anecdotally, there's been some reports on koi potentially getting out to 100 years and and some of the sturgeon and the paddlefish, which are very primitive type of fish, can live exquisitely long. I, I believe there's a Queensland angel or a, a Queensland grouper um, at one of our at the Shedd Aquarium in Chicago that I believe is an original animal from when it opened in the 1930s. So some of these fish can be incredibly, incredibly long-lived. Some of the common things that we see, you know, beta fish, you know. If you get out three to four years, that's probably their life expectancy. But other commonly you know, kept fish like Oscars, you know, 20 to 25 is not unheard of. Clownfish, you know, 10 to 15 years. Angelfish, 15 years. So the koi you know, should probably be living into their 40s, as should goldfish. There's a lot of genetics involved with that, too. And you know, maybe some of our breeders aren't breeding for, long, for longevity. But I think if we provide the proper environment, we can see the life expectancy of these fish extend it drastically. Well, that's definitely a, a really long time for some of these. So what would someone look for in an aging fish? What would you know, a hobbyist consider? You know, some of these hobbyists may be getting fish that they don't really know how old they were when they got them. Right. Some of the, it's really a hard question to, to know if they're, if they're aging or sick. But I think some of the things we look for is they might be slowing down as much. They're not swimming with as much vigor as they were. Sometimes they're hiding more and they're, they're being more reclusive. Sometimes the color on their skin is going to pale a little bit. Um, they're just losing, you know, mental faculties. You know, you can't see a fish stumble like they're getting arthritis, but sometimes watching how they move might give a little bit of a clue too. And that's, you know, a tricky thing. You really need to watch your fish every day to see how things are going. So aging in fish, is it real similar to aging in people and other animals? What kind of diseases or what sort of things would people be looking for? What specific diseases do you think? might be related to a fish that we know is old. Right. I, I think the, the more common, what we consider age-related diseases, are probably you know, induced by a couple different categories. 
Nutritional deficiencies are probably a big thing. I, I believe we just don't know, you know, what does, you know, a freshwater angelfish need every day of his life for 15 years. And, you know, what we're providing them isn't the same as the environment and the water that we're providing them isn't the same as their natural environment. So deficiencies in a lot of vitamins, you know, A and, um, you know, uh, calcium deficiencies, all these things can act up over time. Iodine deficiencies, they can get goiter. Sometimes over-supplementation is a problem. Uh, fatty foods on fish, they're not getting nearly as much exercise as they would in the wild. They can get fatty liver disease, and those can slow them down also. They're probably more prone to infectious diseases, things like fish tuberculosis, so mycobacteriosis can build up over time. They're more susceptible to opportunistic problems. You know, there are streptococcuses in our water column and vibrios, and, you know, as they get older, their immune system probably wanes, and they're more susceptible to those infections. They tend to get more reproductive problems, uh, um, egg binding and stasis, and then probably the most observable problems is skeletal deformities. We'll often see some curvatures of the spine as they get older. We think that there might be uh, potential vitamin C, you know, scurvy-like signs, but I think they can probably get spondylosis and collapsing discs also as they age. In terms of some of the fish and cases that you've had, have you had any, um, you know, really old fish and have you had to, you know, kind of come up with some solutions to try to maybe look at solving some maybe more tricky problems like some of the ones you mentioned? Right, and, and, and we do see some elderly fish, and, and it surely is tricky trying to, you know, prove are they slowing down because they're old or are they slowing down because they're sick for another reason. And, you know, diagnostics, you know, taking x-rays sometimes, and often we'll see spiny changes, uh, whether they're collapsing disc space or, you know, even fractures on, on some of these fish. And then the key is, is how do you treat them? One of the things that's that's becoming a little bit more popular um, with the hobbyists also, and, and probably veterinary medicine, is the use of gel foods. And this is basically a gelatinized food that we can actually add medicines to. And I've started using some glucosamine and chondroitin in some of these fish that I see they have curvatures of the spine just to see if we can reduce inflammation. Anti-inflammatories on these fish, and we can put some of those in their food also to see if they can absorb it. And we're just trying to increase their quality of life. Heart, we haven't done any pharmacodynetics to see if they're absorbing these medicines and what rates, but just anecdotally from talking to clients, yeah, they think they're maybe, you know, after a month of treatment, they're moving around a little bit better. And at least that gives us some hope to continue some of these medicines. And hopefully we're extending their life by, by treating them this way. Now, with your clients, do you have any kind of um, specific regimens or discussions with them on, you know, just general management or, or maybe potentially with, you know, older fish or just their fish in general, uh, things that they can try to do to maybe prevent some of the diseases that may otherwise be, um, you know, popping up? Right. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, the primary thing with any kind of uh, aquarium pond setup is water quality. And, and just like they say, we are what we, we eat, you know, they are what they eat and what they live in. And so older fish, we want to reduce stress as much as possible. And, and the first start is water quality. You know, we should have barely or no detectable ammonia nitrate levels um, and just as good oxygenation levels. Nutrition is a, a key thing, too, is, is I think it's important to vary their diet. Um, we try to, 
you know, use foods up as fast as possible so they're not frozen for a long period of time. They're not sitting in the shelf and degrading for a long period of time also. Um, environmental, if with some of these older fish, we think they're slowing down, you know, that's probably not the tank you want to add a new fish to where there's going to be aggression. And the older fish can't get away as fast or can't chase them as fast, and they might hurt themselves by being, you know, um, trying to get away or, or kind to protect themselves. Um, how they're actually getting to food. Some of these fish are maybe having difficulty getting to the surface as much, and they can't compete as much as food. So clients need to watch for, is the fish getting thinner? Well, maybe it's getting thinner because you can't get to the food as fast as everyone else is eating it. We used to say you feed for, you know, what a fish would eat in five minutes. Well, if everyone else is eating that five in fish in, or food in five minutes and there's none left for our elderly, you know, they're not getting as much. And maybe they're not also absorbing as well as their intestinal tract, so malabsorption problems. So we might have to extend our feeding times. We might have to separate during feeding times or, or provide a modality to where our older fish are able to get to the food a little bit better. So in all the cases that you've had over the long period of time that you've been working, what are maybe what's one of your favorite cases? Well, one of my favorite cases, we, we definitely had a goldfish come in that had some just phenomenal curvature of its spine on x-rays. And, and you could see when she was swimming, she was a hard, having a hard time moving her tail, and therefore she couldn't get up some speed. And we did put her on some long-term you know, gel food. She took to it well, which helped us a lot. And we made it palatable by adding some fish oils to it, but we really upped her dose of, of, of offering glucosamine and chondroitin and anti-inflammatories, and then a lot of vitamin C. And this fish just responded greatly. She was swimming around, uh, more active. This used to be a fish that would follow her her owner or or, or, or caretaker, you know, from one side of the aquarium to the next, just waiting for any kind of attention. And she actually regained a lot of that mobility. Now, her spine never straightened out, but I think she just learned to use it better. So, so it was a you, happy outcome from the fish and the owner. So do you think that, was there some nutritional problem, or what do you think was the cause of that? You know, definitely had a history of she would buy one, you know, the biggest thing of food she could get, and it would, might take her a year to go through it. It wasn't being refrigerated. Um, I think just vitamin C degraded over time. You know, I believe that you know, different manufacturers add different levels of vitamin C and everything else. And I'm a firm believer of buying, you know, at least leapfrogging different brands as you're going through and, and using a month and, and get rid of the rest of it and buy new and supplementing with vitamin C just as oranges and grapefruit, which a lot of these fish love, you know, the koi and goldfish, um, can just try to prevent these problems as opposed to trying to cure it afterwards. Well, that's definitely good advice. Now, there was actually one more thing I know we had discussed about. You mentioned kind of eye disease as potentially something that you might see yeah. as well. We do see some cataract changes in fish as they age. Some of these fish, are, are there's a parasitic problem that causes the eye capsule to be uh, damaged and then fluid leaks and they get cataracts. But there are other fish that don't have this problem, and, and we believe it's age-related, You know, probably like people and dogs, that... Um, capsule around the lens probably breaks down over time and it gets old and and an influx of fluid can cause this, this cataract. Um, I did have the opportunity once to take a fish to cataract surgery. I did not do it myself. I just provided the anesthesia. And, you know, they put this probe in uh, inside the eye and they sucked everything out and they left the capsule. 
And this, this fish did pretty, you know, recovered remarkably well from the anesthesia of the surgery, but he had clear vision, probably provided vision for about three or four months until unfortunately it clouded up again. Um, but I think that, you know, cataract surgery in, in fish is in its infancy also. And I think as we get ophthalmologists with more experience doing it with us fish veterinarians providing, you know, the, the means of anesthesia, I think that knowledge is going to grow better too. And, and maybe we can cure some of these cataracts and fish more long-term than the short-term we just had. Well, that definitely fascinating, and, and there's so much more being done now, and, and that can be done, especially with with some of these older fish, and uh, you know, with clients that are, are uh, willing and, and able to to really do what they can to support them. So, unfortunately, we're we're out of time, and I really want to thank our guest, Dr. Todd Cecil, and also our producer, Mark Winter, for making this show possible. Dr. Todd, thank you very much again. Did you have any final thoughts for our listeners? Well, I think that my thought would be is if you're if you would like to you know find a veterinarian, there are definitely sources to find an aquatic veterinarian for fish, and I like to tell my clients is you know we have the means and the methods to do almost anything in a fish that we can do in a dog and a cat, so we shouldn't be hindered by well, it's not possible because it really is. So if if uh, you find a good veterinarian that's that's willing to help you along, we can go a long way. Well, thank you very much again. I encourage all of you to visit my Aquarimania blog on Pet Life Radio. Also, if you have any questions, comments, or ideas for a show, email me at drroy, that's D-R-R-O-Y, at PetLifeRadio.com, drroy at PetLifeRadio.com. If you're ever in Florida, please be sure to visit the Aquariumania exhibit at the Florida Aquarium in Tampa. Until next time, please visit your local aquarium stores, buy more fish, keep your tanks and fish healthy, and if you think your fish may have a serious illness, work with a local veterinarian who sees fish and help you out. Let's Talk Pets, every week on demand, only on PetLifeRadio.com.